The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. This is absolutely stunning. Wall Street has seen very, very few days like this. The mortgage crisis has now taken down the parent company of Lehman Brothers. Hello and welcome to The Business. In this special edition, we'll look back at the collapse of Lehman Brothers a year ago and ask, have our politicians done enough to sort out the mess? Just how long will we be paying the price for bankers' folly? And what lessons have we learned? I'm Edith Chakraborty and this is The Business from The Guardian. September 15th, 2008. A date as important to financial historians as Black Monday in 1987 and the Wall Street crash of 1929. Lehman Brothers' demise last September led to widespread panic, tumbling markets and a series of drastic measures by governments around the world. Banks were nationalised, industries bailed out and hundreds of billions of pounds and dollars were injected into flatlining economies as the global recession hit hard. Well, we've got a stellar lineup to take us through all of this. Here with me in the pod is Dan Roberts, the Guardian's head of business, our banking expert, Jill Trainer, and for the political angle, Guardian columnist, Polly Toynbee. Dan, you've covered business for 15 years. Can you remember 12 months like this one? Uh, no, no, it's been an absolute roller coaster. In fact, really, it's two years because it's uh, it all kicked off with Northern Rock the previous August. And um, just when it looked like it was going to sort of get dull and quiet again last summer, we had the sort of the, the credit crunch mark two, which was uh, kicked off by Lehman. And Jill, you specialise in banking. Tell me, how many times over the past couple of years have you had to explain credit default swaps? Well, do you know, never until, like you say, about two years ago, when suddenly I had to learn a lot about credit default swaps and CDOs. I remember the very first time writing about a CDO, pretty much the first time, and Sir Howard Davis had described them as toxic waste when he was running the FSA. And that's quite a long time ago, but it was really much later when I started taking it all seriously, I must admit. And Polly, of course, this crisis really has brought politics into fore. It has. On the other hand, I think I am disappointed. I think I thought there was going to be more of a, a cultural and political thunderstorm than actually there has been. It seems to me surprisingly business as usual. I mean, both amongst the banks, but also in the world out there, you don't really feel there has been, you know, there was a sort of brief moment when it was chic to be very frugal. Um, a lot of people days. <laughs> <about> <laughs> days. people were kind of drying their drying their tea bags but um, it passed off and for those you know 90% of people who are in jobs life has continued as before and actually some of them the secret is rather better off than they were before lower mortgages cheaper prices so it hasn't been that sort of correction against the spirit of the bubble that I'd expected. And indeed, everybody's waiting for the bubble to start again, looking at house prices, taking their temperature every day. OK, well, more on that soon. And we'll also hear from the Lib Dem shadow chancellor, Vince Cable, who agrees with you, Polly. But let's head now to the other side of the Atlantic and the epicentre of the crisis. Michael Tomaski's Guardian America's editor-at-large. And as he observes, the nightmare on Wall Street in September 2008 has completely framed political conversation in America ever since. There was blood on the floor at the end of trading on Wall Street today. A financial tsunami. One of the ugliest days I have ever seen. The political mood in Washington and elsewhere after the Lehman collapse on September 15th was absolutely one of panic. 
as we now know, we were very close. Some say we were within hours of a, of a complete global meltdown. Whatever the reaction was on Wall Street and, uh, and in financial sectors, in the political world, one knew that this was going to be a full-blown crisis that was going to require some really fast and uh, very dramatic action, which is always frightening when you're talking about Congress, and uh, that it was going to really rattle and, and reframe completely the presidential election. And I would say that the largest political ramification of the September 15th crisis was that from that moment, voters who hadn't made up their minds yet, which was a substantial chunk of voters, maybe 15% of them, from that moment on, looking at the two candidates and deciding, okay, which of these guys is better suited to handle this crisis? So the mood was definitely one of panic uh, on that day. And then over the succeeding weeks, the crisis completely framed political conversation. We cannot only have a plan for Wall Street. We must also help Main Street. I'm glad that our government's moving so quickly in addressing the crisis that threatens some of our biggest banks and corporations, but a similar crisis has threatened families, workers, and homeowners for months and months, and Washington has done far too little to help. The Wall Street versus Main Street dichotomy is, first of all, a very old one in American politics, uh, and it used to be a a, a populist refrain that one heard more often from the left. This is going way back maybe to the early part of the 20th century, up through the Great Depression. Now it's kind of the property of the right, because there's now a kind of right-wing populism uh, that uh, that holds that those big bankers and those big city people, whatever kind of euphemism you think that is, are the ones responsible for this crisis. This is so outrageous. I think it's probably illegal. I'm now asking you to send us the names of those who received bonuses. Why didn't the Secretary Geithner raise this issue when we knew that he was briefed in detail the about the joke, bonuses? You know, bankers are one rung below child molesters or something like that, I, for a lot of people, I guess. You know, more than that, it, it has really affected the political culture because all this stuff you hear about socialism and so on, it has some dark and, and illogical and paranoid roots. The real world roots that it has to the extent that they exist, have to do with the bank bailout and the uh, Obama administration's decision to bail out the auto companies. Those are two decisions that uh, the administration made early uh, in its tenure. Uh, there are complaints not only about the fact that they did it, but complaints about the way that those bailouts were set up and the way those were constructed. And uh, people may remember going back to the early days of the administration, even when Obama was at 70% approval rating, uh, one of the black marks that they got was uh, Secretary of the Treasury's uh, Tim Geithner's handling of, of the bank bailout in back in March in certain respects. So this whole framework that we're seeing right now in the healthcare debate about socialism and about big government and about governmental encroachments on the private sector and so on and so forth, that all started with the banking crisis and the bank bailout. So let's move on now to the villains of the piece, the men and women of Wall Street in the city. Well, at least villains is how they've been demonised by the media and politicians. Polly, do you think that's fair? Uh, Well, yes, and particularly because they show so little remorse. We had a a group of five bankers who did appear before the select committee and sort of said sorry, but they weren't very sorry. And afterwards they said, what a ridiculous charade. Uh, I don't know of any banker who's actually gone away 
with no money in their pockets. They're all as rich or richer than before. And so uh, they do feel villainous. If they'd been truly sorry, they would have handed over money to people who'd lost their jobs as a result of their actions, or at least made a gesture in that direction. A little bit was winkled out to Sir Fred Goodwin, but that's all. Jill, do you want to enter a plea for banks' mitigation? Not particularly, actually. I mean, I, you know, I keep thinking back to a conference call that took place on October the 13th, so, you know, October the 13th a year ago, when it was announced that Goodwin was finally leaving Royal Bank. And um, it said he, he, he made a little speech in which he said he was sad to be leaving Royal Bank. And I remember he, he was asked, so are you sorry? And nobody really knew. He, he, he did not know how to answer this question. He couldn't say that he was sorry. And, and I think probably at that time... Uh, particularly many of those bankers themselves were in shock about what had happened to them. And if you talk to people involved in the bank bailout, they will tell you that many of those bankers before them were absolutely stunned. So, no, I really don't have much to put in their favour, I'm afraid. OK, Jill. Well, you mentioned the bank bailout, and that was kind of the the, um, the, the kind of political response to the events that Lehman really kick-started. Um, how confident are you a year on that there are no more Lehmans out there, that we're not going to come to another big financial crisis? The fact is Lehman Brothers was an extraordinary event. I mean, depending on who you listen to, the US authorities had to let somebody fail. Better to let Lehman fail than Merrill Lynch. But then why did they not let Bear Stearns fail three months before? I mean, the reality is I think the authorities in the UK, if nothing else, have shown that no bank will fail. I mean, no consumer has lost money in the UK from any bank problem. And I think that if a bank were to fail in the UK, we would probably be in a very, very big crisis. It wouldn't be a crisis of banking now. It would be a crisis of, of national economies. Yeah, I mean, the banks indeed. can't fail by definition now because they all have an explicit public guarantee. Yeah. It was implicit a year ago. It's yeah. now explicit. Mm. Um, Much and, better put than I put mm. it. And do you think we... You, I mean, you drew the parallel, uh, or rather you mentioned that Northern Rock's the thing that really kicked this off. At the time around Northern Rock, there was a lot of talk about moral hazard. And all of that talk seems to have gone away. This idea that bankers will eventually have to face the reckoning for their own actions. And now the government, as you say, stands to underwrite uh, bank, bankers if they go too far over the edge. They, they, they will support them. What, what happened to that, that, that talk of moral hazard? Well, I mean, I think shame on us, really. I mean, I, I, you were looking for somebody to defend the bankers. I'm not going to defend the bankers, but I, but, but what banks do is make money for themselves and their shareholders. That's uh, now what the, the 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 great tragedy of the last year or two is, as Polly says, we have, politically we haven't used that opportunity to um, uh, uh, to reform the system. I mean, the people on the on, on the right and, and in business have often argued that the free market is is some sort of natural phenomenon that's just out there, and to intervene in it is somehow unfair. What Last, the last year or two proved once and for all is that the free market is actually a social construct. It is designed by us to be the least worst way of you know organising an economy, and and therefore it should always be subservient to to society in its structure. There's no one left who can argue against that now. Even the even the most uh, libertarian free market bank you'll ever meet will accept that they are now there by the grace of governments and the people and that's a huge political opportunity that's a once in a generational opportunity to actually change things and and frankly the the, the, the real villains of this piece are the people who haven't seized that opportunity but i think to your point about moral hazard i mean it was Mervyn king i think who was fond of talking about moral hazard i mean he saw moral hazard in in queues around the side of northern rock and realized that you can't have moral hazard in banking and when we did see it look what happened lehman brothers led to a massive collapse in the world financial system so that's partly what happened to moral hazard as well, isn't it? But the extraordinary thing is it's made no difference whatever to the political attitudes of those bankers and anybody in that world at all. When you say, look, when, it, when the chips are down, you need the state. The state is vital. 
Uh, in fact, everything of any importance is underpinned by the state. So the idea that you return to a shrink the state, small state ideology, state doesn't matter, the state is always on our backs, the state is always uh, in the wrong, you don't feel they paused even for a moment to change their worldview and were back in those same old politics and actually that argument is winning even when it should be losing badly. Dan, is that a tribute to the uh, crisis management of the government, both in terms of rescuing the banks and then shoring up the economy, that actually we are yeah. able to get back to some kind of business? I now? think in a perverse way, that's exactly what it is. Because there was a, there was about a three or four week period after Lehman went under when um, uh, people in banks genuinely uh, it really felt on the brink of, of world economic collapse. I mean, as, as Jill and, and, and Larry Elliott recently put in their great Lehman um, uh, piece, they were about to turn the cash machines off. And when you turn the cash machines off, the whole functioning of modern society grinds to a halt now this was a sort of um, that feeling didn't last very long and the reason that feeling didn't last very long is because as Polly said governments rode into the to, to fill the breach and with with a kind of dexterity and, and 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 skill that at the time we didn't really give them credit for but particularly in the uk um, managed to sort of bring us back from that precipice quite quickly almost too quickly you almost wonder whether the feet should have been dangled over the fire for a few more weeks and people have realized quite what was at stake yeah i think and i think that would have been a good idea if if, if the atm machines had uh, stopped if supermarket shelves were suddenly empty and the government given it a couple of days so people could really understand as it is nobody believes it and when you know when likes of us write that actually this was something Gordon Brown got absolutely right the abuse that we get from the bloggers is unbelievable nobody out there seems to believe it this is the business with Aditya Chakraborty well there's nothing like a financial crisis to get your public servants working for you Politicians have been busy trying to keep pace with the crash, as we've been discussing, and that's led to a whole manner of stimulus measures, the price of which will be felt for generations. So did MPs really get suckered into the myth of magical banking? Vince Cable is the Liberal Democrats' economic spokesman. I think in general that's correct, um, both in the United States and here. It, it was seen for a very long period of time uh, that the financial services community were delivering were a sort of golden goose laying eggs um, in the form of you know, revenue for the government, expanding employment, and critical questions were not encouraged. Doubts were suppressed, and I think it is certainly the case that um, they got away with far too much for far too long. And just come forward to the October 2008 bailout. Let's say that you were Chancellor then. What would you have done differently from Alistair Darling? No, I think his response to the crash itself in October was basically right. Um, And I said that, and I still believe that, that what was needed uh, was, you know, recapitalization and nationalization or part nationalization of the banks and a very radical macroeconomic policy response with um, drastic cuts in interest rates, Keynesian approach to deficit financing, quantitative easing, the things that we've had. So I, I think their, their initial response to the crisis was the right one, and I supported it publicly, and I still uh, defend it as being essentially right. I'm critical of the way they have subsequently drifted in not following through, uh, in not um, ensuring that the banks do give priority to lending Uh, to sound British companies, um, as they should do in the public interest, 
uh, and uh, also the failure to take forward aggressively reform of the financial services sector to make sure this doesn't happen again. Okay, so we're we're talking about this a year on. You're now, uh, let's still stay with you being Chancellor of Cable. What would you be doing differently with the banks right now? I think the first step is to to make sure that the banks are providing um, capital to sound British companies uh, which are currently being starved of capital or being given capital on very onerous terms and that this can be done directly through the state-owned or semi-state-owned banks through the directors of UKFI uh, or it can be done indirectly uh, by uh, penalising banks who hoard capital and are in fact lending it back to the government. The Swedes have now got a system of uh, negative interest rates for banks that deposit money with the government rather than make it available in the form of lending, and I think we need to be doing something similar here. So that's the first The first area, is making sure that the banks perform, that they support recovery um, in the way that they're currently not. And finally, since you called the bubble so much before uh, ahead of time, let me just ask you to look ahead again. What do you think the world of banking and, and, and the UK economy, what, what do you think those, those two areas are going to look like in five years' time? Well, I worry that in five years' time they may just look pretty much as they do at the moment. Um, and that's, the, I think, the scary scenario that's beginning to evolve. I mean, there has been a lot of words about restructuring the banking system, you know, breaking up the banks that are too big to fail, introducing utility banking. Um, but I don't see very much sign that this is happening. Uh, I think the one area of progress, um, and I'm pleased that this now seems to be generally acknowledged, is the importance of macroprudential regulation, as it's called, the use of capital reserves in the banking system. But again, this is a long time, a long way off being realized, um, and there is a danger that uh, governments and regulators are relying on that to do far too many different things, uh, like you know, not just making the banks safer over the cycle, but trying to use that instrument to deal with the, the banks that are too big, trying to deal with it, trying to deal with the bonus issue in that way. So, yeah, there is progress on that issue, but I have some reservations about it. And I think the final point I would make is that within a year of the of this crisis, the more cynical end of the financial services community are just assuming that the bonus culture is back as normal. Uh, government and regulators seem powerful to stop it. And I fear, therefore, that the, the gross excesses that we have seen in the past may well still exist and may indeed be on a grosser scale in five years' time, had it leading inevitably to another crash. Vince Cable there. Dan, he ends on a very gloomy forecast. Do you agree with him? Um, I think the conditions are being set for another um, uh, bubble, and that's effectively what we what, what we experienced. Um, we experienced a bubble only four or five years previous to that as well. I mean, don't forget the the, the dot com um, crash was only eight years ago. Um, and so, you know, on the current and, and, and really there was a sort of um, a kind of an emerging market bubble in 1997 as well, that sort of led to the Russian default and LTCM and all those sorts of things. So currently we're experiencing a, a kind of systemic 
you know bubble of of, of sort of uh, of proportions large enough to bring down the, the market every four years which is quite sobering and and he's right i don't think we've done anywhere near enough to sort of um postpone that let alone stop it happening again and jill you're the technical whiz you there are numbers uh proposals out there now whether from Alistair Darling to form the banking white paper or the Tories repost um, which of those do you think stack up do you for instance this idea of living wills for banks good idea bad idea Oh, you can see where Darling's coming from and, and, and the living will idea is something he brought up in, in, in that paper you're talking about I, you, that has to be a reasonable idea. It has to be easier for banks to somehow think about what would happen in the event that they got into trouble. If you're a bank the size of Barclays, they don't like this idea, but you're a bank the size of Barclays, say, and you've got lots of interwoven companies, then how would you break up Barclays? I mean, of course, Barclays would never want to admit it's going to go bust. And one of the arguments being put forward by some of the bankers is that actually, if you ask us to prepare ourselves for default, perhaps it becomes inevitable that we do. But frankly, what the regulators have found is that when banks do get into trouble, they're such complex entities that they're very difficult to solve. And you can see why they're thinking in that way. And have you come across any pros which you think that's absolutely barking or that's actually really, really good and we should have it tomorrow? A proposal we must have tomorrow? Yeah. Um, John Kay's done some research that came out just this week. I think maybe, I think it was even yesterday. And it's quite interesting. His idea is not so much reintroducing Glass-Steagall, but somehow making banks much more focused on what they're meant to do. And you can see some merits in in this proposal. I'm increasingly uh, being swayed by my colleagues into thinking that it is better to keep we banking keep coming more back to this and focused. And Jill is right to keep bringing up the fact that it, it, it isn't anywhere near as simple as, as we all like to make out in the opinion columns. But there is a beautiful, there, there is some, there is a sort of, there is a beautiful simplicity to the notion of a Glass-Steagall site type thing because we were worried about hedge funds going under a few years ago. We were worried about private equity going under. None of it mattered because they didn't have cash machines. They didn't have, take savings deposits. And in fact, they didn't go under. But the point was that the people we least expected went under the sober solid institutions that were pretending to be one thing and behaving like another and there was a very easy way of solving that and that's just to separate out those two functions they do and all the rest is organizational detail um, it can happen over decades I and mean, we don't have to do it tomorrow it can be a policy aim that we can take our time on but the fact is very quickly the fsa has been criticized a lot for the problems and clearly they had a huge problem with northern rock but the subtle things happening inside the fsa where they are now much more on firms' backs than they ever were before. Firms are complaining all the time about the FSA knocking on their door. Now, it's a small change. It's hard to see. Maybe that will make a difference. Polly, that's, uh, that's, from a politician's point of view, that's part of the problem, isn't it? There's lots of subtle changes. There's lots of very good technical proposals. But there's not much politics in any of that. And we've just yes. been through a huge political event. Uh, most people now understand what Glass-Steagall is, and they want it, <laughs> uh, whether it's a good thing or not. And they don't understand the complex reasons why, perhaps, you know, all banking is to some extent casino and it's quite difficult to separate extreme casino from mild casino and so on. What worries me most I think is that we are all of us now addicted to bubbles. We're all waiting for a bubble it feels not very good not to be in one. You want to see things taking off. There's a glamour about the city and about Wall Street and about share prices. I mean, goodness knows why at the moment share prices have leapt up and nobody ever seems to be able to produce a good explanation for that, really, except that I think there is a kind of bubble mania and everybody really wants house prices to rise. That's when they'll feel good again. And the faster and the further they rise, the better, and then it'll go pop again. Mind you, when it does go pop, people have still made an awful lot of money on their houses in between. House prices have still not come down to that much. Um, most people made a lot of in the bubble and kept most of it. 
So, where do we go from here? Well, we've just heard Vince Cable saying that lessons must be learnt to stop a repeat of last September. And on Monday, President Obama warned everyone in the financial industry to support the most ambitious overhaul of the financial system since the Great Depression. Polly, bring that back over here. Last year, this time, we were heading to party conferences and the entire political establishment was transfixed by what they saw happening in the banking world. This year, we're going to political conferences and everyone's talking about public spending cuts. How did a banking crisis turn into a crisis of public spending? Very good question. Uh, The Conservatives, being dominant at the moment, have managed to turn the whole argument on its head that all of the debt that is there, now most of it, or yeah, most of it, due to the crisis and having to bail out banks, uh, is now blamed on Gordon Brown personally, on Labour and Labour policies and on overspending in the good years and failing to fix the roof where the sunshine are shone and so on. Uh, and they're winning that argument. So they're out there, uh, the, the mantra, we must pay the debt back, it's just like um, you know, personal debt in your own household, has taken hold. And it's very dangerous because, of course, the national economies are not in the least bit like household uh, accounts. And Labour seems to have had no economic argument back again. They've simply said, well, we will be restrained, and today for the first time saying, well, yes, there will be cuts. But they haven't actually come back with the big picture saying this is absolute nonsense. And there are scores of economists around the place who would support them and say, yes, you don't need to pay this back so fast. Do you think then that it's uh, it's uh, either a superficial problem of just not uh, having the right person saying the right words at the right time, or is there a more deep-seated problem where, which is handbag economics, as that used to call it, or household economics, as we all understand it, is this very different from the way you actually run a national economy? And for, 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 for an ordinary voter to understand how you run a national economy, why you might need a fiscal stimulus, is this beyond their ken? It's very difficult. You need a really good persuader. You need, you know, a handful of Vince Cables out there. Uh, you know, you'd need a Ken Clark who probably actually would agree with this too on the other side. Um, and it is hard because not many people understand much about economics. And if you say we're in terrible debt and you say it loud enough and often enough, whenever an opinion pollster goes up to this, what's the main problem? Oh, it's the national debt. No, it's not. There are a lot of other much more serious problems first to be dealt with. And Labour doesn't seem to have found a way to express that. I'm not even sure they think they dare say it. I think the pop psychology works slightly better when uh, when there's a sense that we all needed to that those three days we referred to earlier on when, when it was trendy to be um, to be frugal when, when there was a sense that the entire economy had been living beyond its means and we were all too heavily indebted both private and public sector there was a sort of natural um, uh, a coalescence there around the idea of, of, of bringing down debt which I think was was healthy when it was a bit because we had all lived beyond our means and the public sector um, was able to grow partly because the economy itself was growing and that was indeed partly because we were in a bubble so there, that all made sense but then what what the tragedy of what's where we've got to now is that the public um, uh, cuts have continued to be discussed and yet the private reform has completely stalled so now you have got the perverse upside down situation where a crisis that started in the private sector has ended in the public sector but I don't think we should lose sense, sight of the fact that there is a healthy debate to be had about levels of borrowing and consumption across society and whether it's sustainable. And with the public sector as large as it is in this country, rightly or wrongly, that has to be part of the debate. And Jill, to give you the last word on all of this, do you think there'll ever be a point at which uh, a child can turn to their mother and say, I'm off to be, become a banker, that's what I really want to be, and the parents will actually be very pleased? Yes, the fact is that the banking industry is, has survived this crisis, like it or lump it. 
The fact is it generates a vast amount of cash for this economy. But hopefully in 15, 20 years' time when the new generation of bankers are going into banking, they might have a bit more moral gumption about them. Fat chance. And on that gloomy note, time to draw things to a close. You can read our comprehensive coverage of the anniversary of Lehman's collapse at guardian.co.uk slash business. But for now, my thanks to Polly Toynbee, Jill Trainer, and Dan Roberts here in the studio. Our producer's Ben Green, I'm Adit Chakraborty, and that was the business.